Good morrow to you all. You have fallen on barred times. Brought to you by Royal Holloway's Shakespeare Society. You've joined me, Cassie Dixon. And me, Jack Hardman, as we bear some bardy truths. Hello everyone and welcome back to Bard Times. This week we're going to be talking to Will Lawson. Say hi, Will. Hello. And uh, we're just going to be talking about some of his recent um, endeavours, his involvement in the show The Massacre of Paris, and his recent dramaturging experience with uh, Iphigenia in Taurus with Drama Sock. So, Will, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm uh, very flattered to be here. I'm, uh, yeah, having a good time. <laughs> That's good. You should be. Uh, okay, well then. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah, no. So, obviously, you have uh, been a part of the recent show that Shakespeare has been doing, The Massacre of Paris. And I would just like to ask you, basically, how how's it going? How's everything going with that? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. It's the first Marlowe uh, that I've ever done, which is quite an interesting experience. Yeah. So quite, it, it's interesting seeing sort of very similar language to Shakespeare and yet very like diff clear differences in sort of style, uh, which I like, yeah. I, which I find quite interesting. And um, Massacre is also is a, a sort of former history student. Uh, really, really interesting because of, obviously it's set during one of the uh, most. Uh, sort of harrowing periods of religious strife in, in world history. So being able to be part of a dramatization of yeah. that is, is endlessly fascinating. Um, mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm having a whale of a time. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's actually a really interesting point about Marlowe being kind of, it reminds you of Shakespeare, but also there's that slight difference that it's just, it's, it's slightly, how... Could you put like your finger on that difference there? Because I've not read Massacre hmm. um, before, so I'm really looking forward to this coming out so that I can experience hmm. it. Um, but if you would like try and nail down the difference between, say, Marlowe style and Shakespeare's style, what would you say? I would say I, I won't speak as any kind of expert. This is just based on my yeah, yeah, obviously. experience reading yeah. reading the two. But I would say. Shakespeare tends to be more, and this is an oversimplification and a half, but I feel like Shakespeare tends towards more character-focused piece, pieces. So, for example, when he talks about uh, the ancient sort of Roman systems, he'll always focus it on, on a character like Coriolanus or Julius Caesar, right. people like that. Yeah. And I find Marlowe tends to like writing about sort of concepts and, and corruptions. Uh, so I think Jew of Malta, um, while also being... and uh, Dr. Faustus mm -hmm. uh, are very, very sort of interesting character pieces. I feel like he's more interested in talking about the political and sort of uh, moralistic tendencies behind them. So, for example, like yeah. Dr. Faustus is very much centered around a guy's relationship between uh, himself and the church and uh, a lot of the sort of innate sins and corruptions there. Mm. And Massacre in particular is very much about the, the political ramifications of the the massacre itself yeah um, i was surprised reading it how early it comes in what how early the the actual uh violence actually begins yeah the, well the actual massacre itself is one of the first things that happens in the play so really? so much of it is yeah yeah it's it's it blew me away because i thought it would be more lead up and then pay off yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it does kind of a similar thing he does with faustus where the, sort of the, the the defining incident for me, um, like for example, Faustus is, um, has made has already made the decision to 
start cavorting with black magic and demons from the beginning of the play. And the yeah. massacre is also very much centered around the the, the fallout of the massacre after mm. it happens. So he's much more focused on aftermath, I find. Fair. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's actually that's an incredibly uh, insightful response. I was I was expecting something more like guttural, like um, <laughs> Shakespeare uses weirder adverbs or something like that. Um, I mean, he does. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is just my experience of the man. I've sort of like, yeah, <laughs> this is my experience of them. Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm. This is not me uh, complaining. This is me being incredibly impressed. Um, oh also feeling that i'm now extremely out of my league um i, I am i am out. desperately riffing here <laughs> good it's a weird um, an imposter syndrome that comes with shakespeare so often it's like i need to know everything it's like no it's fine you know what you know make the most of that it's okay <laughs> just, just riff just riff yeah. um so in terms of massacre of paris itself what actually drew you to auditioning for the project was there anything in particular was it the piece was it the opportunity to do some voice work a large part of it was the opportunity to do uh, voice work so uh, for people who don't know i uh, graduated royal holloway last year um as part of the history department and i'm uh, an honorary member of the society um so i noticed on uh, one of the old chats that they mentioned hey honorary members can do this and i thought i like voice acting i've never done a marlo before and the the play itself looks really interesting because of all that um juicy historical context that um i i find really interesting and i really wanted to um tackle so i um i submitted an audition for it and in a very flattering way they gave me a part which was very very nice of them <laughs> Yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm extremely excited to see what you make of that coming forwards. How is, how's the, as a, as an act, as an actor, how much voice work have you actually done before this? Obviously you run the, uh, you run a podcast, Yes. which if you'd like to shout out, you're absolutely welcome uh, to. It is called Oratory Creations or the Oratory Podcast. Um, it's just part of a little production house that I have going on, which is producing a lot of uh, small audio dramas uh, based partly on certain fantasy universes that I'm fond of, um, some science fiction, and just basically any story ideas that I kind of want to explore. Um, so that, in terms of your original question, is um, a lot of what my voice work has been, has sort of been self-made projects. Uh, I was also involved in my first year with uh, a radio drama called Of Sapiens and Stars um, on Insanity Radio, um, oh right, which okay. Was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, first time I ever tried out a Russian accent was on that show. Um, <laughs> oh, that's brave. That was uh, it was a lot of fun. It did, genuinely just because no one no one had auditioned for the Russian. They asked me to give it a go. It was like I've never done a Russian accent before, but we'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, very so, good. So it seemed okay. to go all right. And before that, I was uh, very I was involved in one or two uh, YouTube animated series, which I don't know if they're available now. And um, a video game called uh, Sword Legacy Omen, in which I spoke a lot of gibberish, and I am the only person who will ever tr- truly know the, the the lines I did for that game. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's yeah, it's I've Fair play. Flirt- so you've done. So you've actually done. You're quite well rounded in terms of what you've actually done in in voice work before. Is this the so? But is this the first like? Play play you've done. I mean, obviously the radio play. 
with insanity, but other than that... To an extent, I think this is probably... It's the first... It's definitely the first Shakespeare I've ever done as um, purely a voice actor, and... Mm. Um... Yes, I suppose it is one of the... It's one of the first sort of big projects um, where I've, you know, I've been given a character and uh, sort of asked, been asked to interpret. Um, yeah, so. and, and, what, um, and what a character. How, how are you find? What's your... How, how are you finding the, the character of, obviously, the Duke of Guys? Duke of Guys. So, um, spoiler alert for people who haven't uh, seen or read the play. Uh, the Duke of Guise is basically the guy who is behind the massacre, so we can tell right from the off that he is a deeply romantic character with a large and lovable <laughs> fan base. Uh, <laughs> no, he's not. Um, he is he's a monster, but the thing that I found um, sort of interesting about characters like that is trying to tap into why they have the extreme views that they do. So... The yeah. Duke of Guise, I think, I, I think it's very easy when it comes to a lot of Shakespearean villains to uh, to go, you know, he's the he's the shouty, angry man who will yell lectures towards everyone and beg for their attention. Yeah. The, the In a number... kind of scar from the Lion King esque way. A little bit, yeah. It's like the, the sheer number of shouty Oberons you get is kind of. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's I, true. That's true. Yeah, and I think, to be fair, Guise does have a, a tendency towards that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely not a, a break from that, but I kind of wanted to take a look at the character and see, you know, what would motivate someone to have such a hate- hatred of the uh, Huguenot population. So, you know, he mm. talks a lot about his, um, his, his duty and his needs and his commitment to the church, but there's also sort of little traces of, of inadequacy that he feels like he constantly needs to be doing more, that he's not worthy of the tasks he's been set and he has uh, sort of people that he wants to earn the respect of, uh, like the Queen Mother, that he's very, very sort of cheerful and amicable towards. And I think as well, in terms of the motivation of a character that is actually engaged in that kind of brutality, is sort of getting an understanding of, of contrast for me. So, so just to... Yeah. Yeah, so it's very easy, for example, to play that kind of character. It's like constantly angry, constantly hateful, constantly aggressive. Um, I sort of took it a different way and sort of looked at it and goes, he's in the midst of this massacre and this is the happiest he's ever been in his life. He's fulfilling his purpose. He's out there doing what he has been put on earth to do. How does someone face that kind of situation? And uh, I'm not going to say that I, I like the guy, by any stretch of the imagination, because <laughs> I would be a monster for saying that. But I, I kind of wanted to, yeah. to find a sort of interesting spin on things, and hopefully, uh, people will, people will find that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've already seen a sneak peek uh, as part of Anat a, a few oh, weeks yeah. ago, oh, yeah. uh, a night of the theatre. Um, that is up on YouTube somewhere. I'm not entirely sure where. I should probably look that up. Um, but. Yeah, that is up on YouTube somewhere for you to check out, uh, you listeners, where you can get a sneak peek of Will doing a uh, one of the monologues from Massacre. And what a performance, may I just say. What a performance. I've never known someone who could sound so much like a dragon uh, in my life. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll happily take that. Take that, Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, 
It is it, it, it is an incredible performance. Obviously, um, as well as this this part that you've been playing recently, you have just finished a dramaturging for the show Iphigenia. Yes. Um, so that that's that has just finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, how did you how did you find that process? What was there anything in particular as part of that that stood out to you? Well, I mean, the thing that attracted me most to the project was obviously the the prospect of working with James Shannon because he is a, a beautiful, talented man, and we all adore him. Um, That's true. Yes, no doubt. But um, I think with the Fijinaya, um, it, was, it was really interesting as well. It's just because that show had a very long production process um, that was yes. started out as it was going to be um, on stage uh, with a completely different society, and it ended up being an audio drama with with drama sock that we put on almost a year later. Um, I, I, I still remember meeting up with James uh, about about a year ago, just over the Christmas holidays, just of drafting ideas of how we would want to uh, to tackle the project um, and sort of interpreting Greek drama and trying to find a way to um, to get that kind of ancient style of of writing and characterization to connect with a modern audience, while also being helpfully just a little bit less misogynistic, <laughs> if we can achieve that. <laughs> Yeah, we were saying. Uh, I think we were discussing this last week with James uh, briefly, but we, um, yeah, there were there was quite a lot of there's quite a lot of things which you guys actually changed about it, wasn't there? Because there was there was the whole scene um, between Orestes and if and if Janiya, where there was all that dialogue and all that. That isn't actually in the original, is it? Uh, that lengthy sequence where where they're discussing things, I I believe it was it was a feature of both of the translations that I saw. Um, it was heavily cut down um, from what I remember from the from the script and the draft. Um, I think there were a lot of elements that we changed. And I think a lot of the um, sort of the emphasis of it um, we kind of wanted to shift. Um, in terms of that there was a lot of dialogue that we felt was superfluous of you know Pylades saying it's like this is the responsibility of you know this is a man's responsibility and I thought it was like Iphigenia is the yeah. like quest heroine here don't try and hoard in on her limelight because she is the one getting everything done you're wasting time and no one's yeah. gonna like you also sexist um no (laughs) eject that doesn't help (laughs) yeah um yeah no yeah Orestes is definitely the kind of he's the baby odor of um of the story in that he just is people just carrying him around oh people just carrying him around I I, I, Um, I feel like baby Yoda pulls his own weight in that show uh, without, without wanting to spoil too much for people who have seen the Mandalorian, I feel like you know oh. he definitely contributed heavily at a couple of different points. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah. It's, it was really interesting though, um, sort of tackling that kind of um, project because I'm sure sort of James mentioned a lot of the other changes we made, like um, serendipitously, this was just through uh, casting. All of the native uh, Taurians ended up being women. So we ended up having this wonderful sort of Amazonian context to it, which I felt, um, so, which we felt was really interesting because they're so often portrayed as this sort of like savage barbarian culture. Um, and it's really easy, I think, to to find very sort of colonial takes on that. 
um, for yeah. barbarism and savagery, which uh, neither of us were keen on, neither of us, uh, and we were always struggling with the process of how do we present that culture as different and antagonistic without being actively offensive. And yes. I think d- just based on the, the performance of the actors we got and uh, th- so many fantastic ones in there, um, there was a lot of sort of like dignity, but also sort of strength and power, I think, to that culture that came across, which for me was probably uh, one of my favorite aspects of the uh, the show. Fair. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and out of interest, how many have you ever dramaturged before this, or is this your kind of first uh, go at it? I think yeah. I you know I think that might actually have been the first one that I I did because I've taught I've discussed projects with a lot of people, but I've never officially been yeah. a, a dramaturg on one. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. So in 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 that case. How did you find that compared to, say... Because obviously you have previously, before this, you've directed stuff for um, Unseen, I believe it was. And you have acted yes. in many things throughout your time at at the university. Um, particularly, uh, we've been very lucky to have you in, in quite a few Shakespeare plays. Um, so how so how does that how does that role compare to directing and acting and how how did you find it compared to those roles? Well, I think it's it's really interesting for me um, because what one of my big passions is uh, story development, writing, and um, you know coming up with with character concepts. So having the opportunity to work with uh, James, who had a very clear vision for the show, and find ways to tap into as much raw character emotion, try and get a real good understanding of where the show is going is is really interesting um but i I think that's one of the most interesting things because um i suppose the last uh major project i worked on before iphigenia was uh i directed the macbeth audio drama yes and that was that was quite interesting because um sort of developing um that both of those centered heavily on developing where we wanted the characters to go and what we felt the core of the story was and i think that's Sort of the, the the nature of any good uh, adaptation is getting a really uh, solid understanding of where you want what kind of story you want to tell and how your characters are going to uh, to best express it um, and, and to be fair we've uh, had a couple of good shows like that like a certain Love's Labour's Lost Take uh, that I felt <laughs> I, I felt did that very very well um, I'll stop at you <laughs> never but yeah. but that but that was the I think that was the the core of it was um the the difference for me was instead of having something that I was writing from scratch it was nice to have that sort of collaborative process so uh, some of my yeah. more extreme ideas were um, <laughs> were sort of challenged by the <laughs> more experienced classicist um, I, I felt like I might as well uh, tell the story. Um, spoilers ahead for Iphigenia, um, if you haven't watched it, do, because it's incredible, and it's one of my favourite projects that I've worked on. Um, but at the end of the play, um, Athena shows up, this sort of big, big storm, um, and sort of dictates instructions to, uh, Thoas, or Thoas, as we did it, uh, in the, in the show, um, of, of what to do next and how to honour the goddess Artemis. And throughout the play, the Taurians had been a cult of Artemis. They had been uh, constantly referencing the goddess. The goddess was involved in rescuing Iphigenia, 
And about halfway through uh, drama tagging, I, I just sent a message to James and said, I, I have a controversial take now. I want to change the god that shows up at the end of the play. Because I felt it made much more sense for it to be Artemis rather than for Athena. Because Artemis, yeah. she was the one who had been referenced out the whole thing. Now, there's a long-standing tradition of having Athena show up in the sort of more active interventionist role, and they were heading towards Athens, so it made sense for her to show up, and there were like lots of very compelling historical reasons and cultural reasons for her to stick around, but... For me, I was kind of trying in to approach that fashion, as it the, makes yeah in a narrative fashion. Yeah, it, it that <laughs> yeah. does make sense. But then also, I I I do have to. I tend to agree with with uh, James, the director here, on this. Um, because, yeah. j- simply because, um, well, you know what? Actually, I say this, but it depends on whose story you look at it from. Because if you look at it from Iphigenia's point of view, it makes a lot more sense for Athene to be the person to break to cut no not Athene for Artemis to be the person who uh kind of steps in and and stops everything but then if you look at it from Orestes point of view who's all of uh all of his journeys through the Oresteia um have all Mm. basically based around uh Athena helping him out um Mm. Athene and um Oh, the sun god. What was he called? Apollo. Um, yeah, help helping him out. Um, I think that makes more sense. And I obviously to traditionally, um, mm. despite the fact this is absolutely Iphigenia's story. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, it, uh, traditionally, it would be centered more on the the kind of male focus. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, because of it, it's such an incredible story from Iphigenia's point of view. Yeah, well, also I like, think for for me as well, it was also the the expectation that we were doing this as a sort of a single take show. We didn't have the context of the others ahead of us. So it was, for me, it was about will the audience that we are presenting to um, follow that in as much. But I think now that it's a, a permanent audio drama that you can still listen to. Uh, <laughs> by now yeah no uh yeah so where 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 would you find that actually quickly i believe you would find that on the royal hotway drama society youtube channel uh so uh, check that out please <laughs> please <laughs> please um it was <laughs> do I, can i sound more pathetic <laughs> uh no, I think it's a genuinely good show, and you should go watch it. But also, I would agree. Please, but we are it biased. It would make me happy. Um, <laughs> we are all biased. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So anyway, you, those are just obviously you. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I quite like that as a take. I did. I. It is definitely something that crossed my mind during the process of rehearsals for that play, and in general, because um, obviously you've been a part of quite a few plays on on campus up to this point. Which one? Uh, from the shows you have done either on campus or outside would you think is particularly kind of influential or, or your favorite that you've you've been a part of oh god that's a that's a tough one uh it it really depends on uh which kind of thing i think from a pure acting standpoint um it depends. From a pure acting standpoint, I think Coriolanus was probably my uh, my best work, um, and one of I think the the more uh, definitely one of the more interesting plays because that sort of pushed me in a lot of different directions. It was 
one of my first lead characters. Uh, I was playing a minor bit character called Coriolanus in it. And <laughs> he, uh, and there was a, there was a lot of action. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of emotional nuance. The character there was, a, and it was so much fun to get stuck into that. So that was an absolute delight from start to finish. Uh, and I think uh, comedy as well. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to do the full run, but the the shows we managed to do of Happily Ever After for the Holloway Players. Yeah, oh, it's a lovely group. An incredible show. A uh, big shout out to the Holloway Players. As uh, we did it last week, but we're doing it again because they're wonderful, wonderful people, people doing wonderful work. Uh, my I, my only regret from uni yeah. at all is that I didn't do more stuff with them because oh, they are they are the best yeah um and then so i i feel like i could go on th- about this question for hours but I, I will stick with two more just because i think they're, they're, they're just just, just okay, to fill the needs okay. no 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 <laughs> no no go for uh, it go so for it. again for me i think one of the most emotional experiences i had was i didn't think i was going to direct a show at holloway beyond the one unseen piece i did um so when the opportunity came around for me to do Macbeth. Uh, which is like audio drama, voice acting formats like this I know and I have a concept I want to put ahead for Macbeth. That was a wonderful project because so creatively free. Uh, I had a, such a wonderful group of people working with me throughout the entire process. I, I feel like everyone threw, threw themselves into it 100%. And I've, it's, it's some of the, the best work that I think um, that I've, I've certainly done and it's some of the best performances that I've I've seen there are sequences towards the end of that show, despite the fact that I spent hours upon hours and days upon days editing them, that still give me the chills. And I chalk that entirely up to the wonderful team I had behind me. That was incredible. Um, and the, the last thing yeah. I swear to God I will mention on this is um, the, the uh. project I'm working on right now. Uh, it's a production of Romeo and Juliet with Ruckus Theatre Company. It's the first big yeah. stage professional show that I have ever done in my life. And I I could not love everyone involved with that project more. They have been wonderful and professional from start to finish. Uh, it's some of the most in-depth character work I've ever done. It's been meticulously thought out. And it's, it's such a hold-nothing-back take on Romeo and Juliet. Uh, it's, it pushed me so far. And that is going to be a, a, a really special show when that comes out. <laughs> That's really exciting. Yeah, um... Where where when where can people kind of see you in that then? So if you head over to the website of the Cockpit Theatre, uh, you can find that we are we are publicised on there. I believe, COVID permitting, uh, we will be performing that on stage in the early weeks of uh, December. I believe it's from the thirteenth uh, or fourteenth onwards. Uh, but d- double check the website to be absolutely certain of that because that is, I, and I say this. As someone who is very admittedly biased, <sighs> but that is not one you want to miss because everyone in it has been incredible from start That's to finish. That's very good. I'm glad. I'm glad that is going so well. <laughs> Obviously, we had James on last week, who is uh, helping, uh, I believe, stage manage that show. He is, yes. Um, yeah, and he he was he was singing that show's praises oh, as well. I, I'm very excited to go see it. Wonderful. Um, obviously, out of those, you've those are you examples of you directing and acting um is there anyone in your kind of past as an actor or a director who has particularly influenced you um out of the because obviously you must have had some kind of influence to be able to get to the point where you are now i i i have i have a lot of different influences um i I think in terms of uh 
I'll go for I'll go for actors. I think just because I I could sing the praises of so many different people at the uni, we will be here all day. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I'll, I'll go for actors. But um, yeah, so uh, one of my absolute favourites of all time is probably not a, a well known actor, but he's a man by the name of David Warner. Um, any of the any nerds in the audience who have ever played the Baldur's Gate series might recognise him as uh, John Arrakis from those games. He was also um, he's he's had like a minor bit part in Titanic, and he's been in a lot of different Star Trek episodes. Uh, I think he's uh, the one who has the distinction of being the man who tortured Patrick Stewart um, oh, in a okay. wonderful episode um, that is still very hard to watch. Uh, but he's he's a man of incredible presence. Um, something I absolutely love about him his his vocal delivery, the sheer amount of emotion he manages to pour into it is. Uh, something I absolutely love. Um, so he's definitely an influence of mine. Um, there are a lot of voice actors like that. I think Keith David, um, Kevin Michael Richardson, who have two of the most beautiful voices on earth. Um, you have as well, um, I think Alex Wilton Regan as well. Uh, been a big influence. I'm also just basically anyone who's ever played the Doctor. Just, just all of them. Okay. <laughs> They're all wonderful. <laughs> I love them so much. Uh, <laughs> to be yeah. fair, I could gush about I, that all day. I am, I am worried. <laughs> I, I'm honestly worried that this show will just become um, me gushing with different people about Doctor Who at, at some point. Um, oh, as that? that's exactly what happened last week, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid it again this week. Okay, I will. I will um, restrain myself. But, then. but yeah, but yeah, that, those are some really, those are some really interesting choices. Um, I must admit, I have not heard of all of them. But I'd be surprised um, if you had. Yeah. <laughs> But no, those are some really interesting choices. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I, I think that's us done with talking about you. So uh, good, if, good. If, if you're okay with that. I'm always okay with that. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's move on to the news for this week. So the big news, uh, the big news thing from this week is that The Crown has... The, the new series of The Crown has come out. And... It has recently come under fire for making up for basically making up scenes, and people are not very happy because obviously the show is kind of branded itself as almost a biopic of the royal family. Um, I just want to I just I just wanted to talk about basically where you stand on biopics and things like that, making up scenes and making up history. See, this is a difficult one because I have I have two different hats I wear for this. Uh, one of them is as the historian who is very much in favor of do the research commit yourself to what you're trying to adapt and try and make it as realistic and grounded as possible but i think with that also comes the the, the creative hat um which is at the end of the day uh, this is about narrative it's about character and it's about exploring ideas and themes and i think there is definitely room for both um one of the most interesting shows that I stumbled across recently is actually the um, the the Vikings show. Uh, that yeah, that oh, I, yeah, I believe is available on uh, Amazon Prime right now. Yeah, Amazon. Yeah, because because yeah, what I Amazon so. Prime really needs right now is more people advertising it. Uh, <laughs> in case yeah. you haven't heard, there's this little indie studio called Amazon. <laughs> really struggling. Yeah, yeah. They... Um, but, but but that show, um, that show, unlike a certain Assassin's Creed game that came out recently, has a very grounded take on uh, a lot of Norse history. <laughs> I, I have feelings about that game, but um, 
No, but it's no, but it's really interesting because you can see um, from start to finish loads of different sort of environmental details. The costume design um, is, is is almost like incredibly realistic. They uh, have a lot of very uh, real, very fleshed out characters, and it, it feels very true to life. And it, it's it's very hard to describe, but I think it's it's one of those things where you can tell they've looked very deeply at the key figures in Viking history, and. Um, so, for example, when they do the the raid on, I believe it's Lindisfarne, uh, which was the the first major Viking raid on an English settlement, almost anything else would hype that up to be this enormous raid, this big moment of great significance. Uh, the show does give it its proper significance, but it's it's very tame, it's very restrained, and it doesn't hold back from presenting the brutality of it while still managing to make their characters sympathetic. So, I think true to life. Yeah. And I think it also happens like mid-season, it's episode, it's episode, it? it? happens in like episode no, it's four episode two. or something like that. If I remember rightly, yeah. Yeah, It's, yeah. it's really early yeah, on. So it's not... Um, which... Yeah, because I've seen I've seen the first season of Vikings. Um, I, and then I, there are so I bloody mean, many. <laughs> so, I don't know. There are so many. <laughs> it's, so, it's, su- it's, such a, it's such a long uh, series of, series of uh, television. But... Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more honestly about the whole just applying to narrative because I think looking at looking away from TV and at film, um, things like films like The Social Network, mm-hmm. um, where obviously the whole context for that entire film is completely yeah. made up. Uh, the girlfriend at the beginning, um, completely made up. And uh, certainly, if you're looking at uh, and I. I want to preface this by going. I am not a film student. Uh, That's fine. <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, I'm I. But this is this is from what I have read and from what I have uh, listened to about these things. Um, but certainly about things like uh, I think it's actually approached in the film Vice mm. um, about Dick Ch- uh, the biopic about Dick Cheney, where they actually approach a scene and basically go, yeah, like in the film they go, yeah. None of this happened. Uh, this conversation did not happen. There is no way we could tell that this happened because no one will give us any information. But we figure a conversation might have had, like, might have happened like this yeah. at some point. It, it, see, one of the thing, things I find quite interesting about that as well is one of my favourite shows, I, I think of all time, came out very, very recently, is the uh, HBO miniseries Chernobyl. Uh, and oh yeah, that show is absolutely fascinating in terms of its its depiction of that um that disaster because so much of that is is completely true the the response of the soviet government the um the the actions of the the scientists involved the lengths they went to to try and get that disaster under control so much of that is it's very real and very true and it's and i've having listened to the podcast surrounding it and read up on the event itself as part of my degree um, so much of that is is completely accurate, and they've de- like they dived deep into the research, but they very clearly had a, a story that they wanted to tell, which is summarized in one of the first lines of the show, which is "What is the cost of lies?" And it's interesting when a show has to sort of lie about that in order to 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 get to it. So, for example, one of the characters in it, uh, I want to say her name is Svetlana. I could be wrong about that. She's a, a female scientist. And uh, she's the one who sort of like tags along with the, the group and it brings them a lot of very important information and sort of uh, guides them along the right path. She is not a real person. 
she was never actually connected to it. She's a creation from the show. Really? That is basically an amalgamation of various different scientists who were there. But obviously, because they couldn't account for all of those different scientists as characters, and because there was no way to acknowledge the contribution of every single individual one of them, they amalgamated them into one character. But they admitted it at the end. Um, they admitted that that was what they had done and that this was one of the only ways to do it. Now, that may be considered by a lot of people to be uh, an overreach in terms of narrative convenience. But what that actually did was that was a lie that allowed them to sort of represent a larger degree of scientific opinions and to represent conversations that actually took place and to have a contrast with the the two main characters um, to to have them sort of have a counterweight to explore their ideas, sort of the, you know, Hegelian dialectics, thesis, antithesis, and then you find the sort of core answer at the end. Um, so that in itself was was really really interesting. But as well, there were a lot of things that the Chernobyl show did depict which were considered to be you know, less accurate. Um, so, for example, they draw a lot on uh, eyewitness testimony and the um, the the uh, there's a book called Voices of Chernobyl. Uh, in which they they talk to a lot of the the survivors from it, yeah. and uh, there are various accounts that claim that there were a lot, there was a large group of people standing on a bridge in Chernobyl who watched um, the fire in the reactor from this bridge, and the sort of ash started falling, and they thought it was like aha, it's snowing, or there's, there's this strange light in the sky, and all of those people supposedly got radiation sickness and died, and the show makes that conceit. There is a lot of controversy about whether or not that actually happened. Because a lot of people claimed that there were there was no mm. one on that bridge, that there, there was that that never happened. But the show insists that it did because the yeah. eyewitness testimony that it had did insist it did. So yeah, so it's kind of it's also <laughs> kind of the that's a really interesting story to tell. Uh, that kind of you don't even need to be involved in a disaster; you can just be watching it and still just destroyed mm. by it. And I think that like that as a is that a theme? That's more of just a story, isn't it? But, um, like, but it, is in key, it is key to the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, and so, so having that as a um, uh, like using that as almost a device <laughs> uh, that that is the conversation, though, isn't it? Because you have to remember that yes, uh, narratively, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and on a, if I was if I was writing something, I would probably a biopic of some kind or telling a, a story that did actually happen i probably would do that in order to make it fit uh a narrative kind of uh, the most effective narrative mm. that i could tell um however these are people's lives and that's that is more than that is also a question is like do is is messing with this misrepresenting people's mm. actual lives see for, for me what it comes down to is a, how upfront you are about how you have adapted the, the show that you have, um, and B, why you have chosen to put that scene in in the first place. So, for example, I think with... Yeah. Um, now, granted, I haven't seen The the Crown and their depiction of Diana. It's not a kind of show that I'm particularly interested in, so I'm unlikely to. But in terms of uh, historical dramas, um, if we take, say... Uh, what's a what's a good example of this? 
I'm trying to think. Well, okay, let's let's take Chernobyl because we've been we've been talking about that a lot. So they put in a big courtroom scene at the end where the guy discusses this is why the Chernobyl disaster happened. I'm not going to spoil it because I genuinely believe everyone should watch that series. It is phenomenal. But this is why that happened. And they spell it out. And everything he says in that scene is true, despite the fact that he never said it at that specific court hearing. And that and the way in which that is framed never happened. But it is a way for them to compile all that together. It is a way of them telling the story and getting at the truth in that particular way. When something like Braveheart decides to de-age uh, a princess or like move her lifespan closer to Mel Gibson's so that they can have a relationship, that's sensationalism. And that's just kind of laughable and ridiculous. And why would you go to the trouble of doing that? It's William Wallace, for God's sake. It's not like you're at a lack for sex scenes that you could potentially have there, I'm sure. But, uh, but like you, you get that with a lot of different things. It depends on what you're trying to adapt. Um, I think that... Uh kind of wrapping that conversation up uh, that is that is some really good points and this has been this has been lovely having you on on the show will i do have to ask before we before we finish up today what is your favorite shakespeare oh okay i've got to try to keep this short um i love every character in julius caesar that's fascinating there isn't a single scene of macbeth i don't like and i love the relationship between hamlet and claudius but I am going to probably go for Macbeth. I'm going to go for Macbeth. I love it. To, from beginning to end, I love it. <laughs> Good. You'd hope. You did I direct don't. it. Uh, <laughs> he says, uh, looking at Love, Labour's Lost. Um, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so would you like a chance to plug all of your um, the series of shows and projects that you Okay, here we go. First of all, uh, Massacre in Paris is going to be on uh, Royal Holloway Shakespeare Society's, uh, I believe, YouTube channel. There's going to be a screening at some point, but check that out because uh, that's got a lovely team behind it as well. Very talented group of people. Definitely check it out. Uh, if it, if and I are in Taurus, it's come out, but if you haven't seen it already, go watch it. It's great. It's it's free. Just just do, just do it. <laughs> just do it and have fun. Um, uh, there's also, I'm going to plug my own thing, even though it's mine, so it's awful. Uh, Oratory Creations, you can find us on YouTube, you can find us on Facebook. Um, you can find us on an Instagram page that I barely know how to update. Uh, <laughs> I'm bad at social media, but check us out if you want to see uh, nerdy-ass people talk about nerdy-ass things and uh, also do occasional audio dramas. Ruckus Theatre Company is doing a production of Romeo and Juliet at the Cockpit Theatre this December. Definitely, definitely, definitely check that out because there are so many wonderful people involved with that. Um, and oh, and also uh, there's a piece of mine that's being adapted for uh, City Lighthouse Theatre's uh, Scratch Night, but also so also check them out. Oh yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so check all of those things out, please. <laughs> <laughs> no well thank you so much thank you so much for coming Pleasure. on the show this has been incredibly lovely it's been it's been amazing talking to you about um historical inaccuracies I, I think it's added it is added by the fact that you were a you, you obviously have a degree in history um meaning that any conversation uh, I feel instantly out of my depth, which is it's great. It's good. I like to feel the half the point of this uh, this podcast is to make me realise quite how uh, uneducated I am. Don't, don't sew yourself um, short, Jack. So you're, you're you're wonderful to talk to. It's you're a smart guy. 
don't don't sell yourself oh, short. Stop it. No, I'll stop no, it. viewership. Don't let him get away with this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for joining me this week, all of you, for Bard Times. This has been Jack Hardman. Stay safe, and in the words of the Bard himself, Our doubts are traitors, and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt.